Merry Christmas. We made it up the hill to North Campus on time, I think, so good deal for that. We're going to be looking at Zephaniah this morning, chapter 3. Oh, the kids can go to Children's Church before I forget to go that part taken care of. If you don't know where Zephaniah is, then probably 99.9% of us don't. Uh, just buzz along there, you'll find it. It's in the Minor Prophets. We're going to be looking at chapter 3. Uh, it's Christmas time, and as you know, from the lighting of the Advent candles to all the different special things that are going on this time of year. Most of us are excited at this time just for the memories that we have of Christmas. Children get so excited at this time, I mean, to the point where they can't sleep, they so anticipate having gifts brought to them and so forth. I thought it might be fun for us to remember as we go through this passage this morning to think of what was your favorite Christmas gift. Uh, it's funny, as I was thinking through this this week and kind of testing this question out, uh, most of the time when I ask people, what was your favorite gift ever at Christmas, I usually get a response of something that they received as a child, a toy, uh, something that they had anticipated for uh, quite a while. Uh, very rarely do adults get as excited about receiving gifts. Uh, I think for adults, our fun is giving gifts. Right? I, there's nothing I like better than uh, just giving something to one of my kids that they didn't see coming, but yet it fit perfectly into what they need. That produces that emotion that we often refer to as happiness. We're happy at Christmas. We're happy for the food that we get. We're happy for the family and friends that gather. We're happy for all the things that go with this time of the year. And yet, I'm well aware that there are many of us that are not happy at this time of the year. Uh, that could be because somebody that we loved passed away at this time of the year. Uh, some a major event in our family happened that was really negative. Whatever the case. So we try to be careful. We try to make sure that we're not stepping on someone else's toes when we think about this time of the year. And those of us who have largely happy memories try to tone it down a little bit. And those of us who are a little depressed at this time of the year try not to let others see it so we don't rain on their parade. And we're kind of finding ourselves, especially in a church, in the balance of that. But that's happiness. Uh, when I think of my favorite gift of Christmas time, I think of uh, when I was a young boy, I got the Man from Uncle Gun. I don't know if you remember Man from Uncle, that early 60s TV show. <laughs> But it looked like a portable 60s radio, portable radio, uh, about that wide, tall. Yeah, the bottom half was kind of a speaker with a leather cover, if you can remember those, the kind of thing you would put on the ground as you uh, relaxed or sunned or whatever, and uh, just a radio. But once you press that hidden button and the barrel of the rifle shoots out the side and the stock comes out from the back of the gun, and pretty soon you had it, and it came with dark sunglasses and fake walkie-talkies. We were set. It was great. However, my brother would not remember that particular Christmas with happiness. Why? Because my grandfather, fulfilling the long foster tradition of joy and sarcasm uh, being brought together, had given him a baby doll for Christmas. And all I can remember of that event is just him winging that doll across the dining room table against the wall and so upset because in his young age, of course, 
he thought that was all there was, but of course he had other gifts. And somebody whose name will go unmentioned actually made a point of packing that doll up at my grandparents' home and making sure it got home with us so that my brother could enjoy that all over again. <laughs> Don't know who that was. But anyway, that, that's, that's happiness or the lack thereof. But what we're talking about this morning and what the uh, candle lighting represents with the candle of joy is joy, rejoicing. Uh, what we're going to speak of is something that's different than happiness. Uh, it's not anything to do with the season of Christmas. It is more to do with the theological truth of the advent of Christ's birth. Those are two different things. And the longer that I live, the more I see the distinction between them. So I said we were going to be reading from Zephaniah. And like I said, if you don't know who Zephaniah is, he'll be one of those guys when you get to heaven and you bump into him and he'll say, hi, I'm Zeph. And you'll be like, Zeph? Yeah, I wrote a book of the Bible. And I don't want you to have to confess that you didn't have any understanding of that or knew that he wrote a book. So we're going to dwell here for a little while today. And it's a short book, but I'll just say this on, in his defense. Uh, most scholars consider it to be some of the most polished Hebrew uh, in the entire Old Testament. Uh, it is some of the most intimate writing of God to his people. As with all of the prophets, it's God's word to his covenant Israel, his relationship with his people. So the book is divisible into three parts. The first part is the typical prophetic judgment against the nation of Israel. They've been disobedient. They have not lived to fulfill all the promises that they made to God. Remember back when the covenant was made between God and his nation, his chosen people? He said, I will be your God. He kept his part. You will be my people. They fail miserably time after time after time. It's just a continual repetition as you read, starting in Isaiah, all the way to the close of the Old Testament, that God's people uh, disobey, repent, disobey, repent, disobey, and repent. And eventually they get to the place that no matter how hard God speaks through his prophets and how firmly he states his judgments, the people of God don't seem to care. Even when they're carried off into exile by the Babylonians and previously that to, by the Assyrians, they don't return to the land full of promise and obedience. In fact, it doesn't even take more than just a few years till they're right back at it, worshiping false gods, not living for the Lord. And God in his frustration and in his promised judgment goes dark, totally silent. He doesn't speak to them for quite a while. But in the time of Zephaniah, Zephaniah himself is writing right at the close of Judah's history. He's considered a pre-exilic prophet. Uh, his contemporaries would be Jeremiah, Obadiah, and they're trying to get the people of Judah to turn their hearts, uh, maybe even the court of the king, to turn his heart back to God. Uh, king Josiah and uh, his great revival was probably part of Zephaniah's history. Zephaniah himself most scholars believe, was part of the royal family. Um, he was intimate to the court. And if you remember the story of King Josiah, the last real king of Judah before the conquest, 
uh, King Josiah was the one that was told, oh, wait a minute, we were doing some construction. We found secreted in the wall the, the law, and it was brought out. It was read aloud at Josiah's command, and revival happened. <coughs> Excuse me. Josiah decided that we had not been obeying God as a nation and that that needed to happen. And then they went right back into disobedience. All right? It was a short-lived revival. So that's Zephaniah in a nutshell. So let's just take a look, starting in verse 14. That's what he has to say. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. I hope when you're in your private Bible reading time and you're doing this, that when you read words like this, you don't sit there like it's all too easy to do and just kind of quietly sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout. Oh, no, get into it. This is a command. This is an imperative from God. Sing aloud, shout, rejoice, exult. I just got done talking about happiness. It's great to be happy. But happiness is so dependent upon circumstances of life. When things go well, we're happy. When things go wrong, we're unhappy. Joy, joy is supposed to be there all the time. Uh, Paul writes in Philippians chapter 4 that we should rejoice always, right? Rejoice, rejoice. And no one lived a tougher life than Paul. Well, how's that possible? See, it would be wrong for me this morning to sit and tell you, please, be joyful. Just conjure it up somehow out of your emotions. Uh, if you're feeling down, forget that. If you're having some things in your life go wrong, don't let that get you away from this. Just be joyful. And that's not what this writer is saying. Stephanie is saying that joy is transcendent. Joy is independent of you and I. It is not relying upon what's happening in your life. You see, God is joy. It's one of his attributes. God himself is eternally joyful. And that's hard for us to understand at times. We tend to think of God as this dour old man, full of judgment, just like I talked about the first part of this book. So angry with the world and with his people. He's not happy. He's not joyful. But that's not the truth. He's always joyful. He cannot have joy. Even when he's disciplining us, he is joyful. Think about this when you discipline your children. They, they do things, right, when you have little kids that require us to, to pay attention, to take notice. We want them to mature and to grow up in a certain way, so we're going to say something to them. We may even spank them. And we want them to change their behavior. Why? Not so they can be happy, but so that we can be happy. <laughs> so those ornaments on the Christmas tree don't get taken off and broken. So they go to the bathroom when they're supposed to go to the bathroom, when they turn off the TV or their social media when they're supposed to turn it off. Uh, we were just down in Houston visiting our grandkids, and my daughter Hannah has twin three-year-olds and then the little baby that we went down to see. But I tell you, from the moment that those three-year-olds are awake till the moment they go to bed, there's noise in the house. It's a cacophony, a sound and crashing and things getting stolen from one another and yelling, mine, mine, mine. And my, my daughter Hannah, 
uh, does the best job she can to discipline them. Sometimes she has to take them and put them on the couch and say, you, sit on the couch. Now, one of those twins, he's a rule tester, right? You put him on the couch, and he's supposed to sit there quietly for a while, waiting until mom says he can get up. But before that moment comes, he will slide over to the edge, and then a little further. And the next thing you know, if you don't pay attention, he's standing on the ground with just a finger on the couch. That fits, right? I'm still safe. And then the finger begins to slide the whole time he's looking at mom, wondering, is this going to be too far? Now, for my daughter's sake, if it was up to her, her son would never test her. He would just stay on the couch. In fact, he wouldn't have done anything in the first place to have to take a time out. Doesn't mean that he's robbed her of his love for her, or of her love for him. No, she loves him. It's still going to be a great day, but you have to discipline. You have to make sure he understands that she's the mom. When she says something, he has to obey. That's what you see in the Old Testament. Just because God is disciplining his people, just because he has judgments against them, doesn't mean that his joy ceases. God is joyful, independent of circumstances. Even the circumstances of our relationship with him, his covenant relationship is not dependent upon us making him happy. But that being said, his prophecy is this. Sometime in the future, it hasn't yet occurred in the time of Zephaniah, but sometime in the future, you should be ready to sing, to shout, to rejoice, to exult. Sing, O daughter of Jerusalem. Wow. That's awesome. Uh, think of it this way. You own a car. Most of us own a car. And when you drive it, you may enjoy it. It gets you where you want to go. Um, but you can't just drive it forever. Correct? You have to do something with it. You have to fill it with fuel. You may have one of the fancy new cars that's electric, and you just have to charge it. It doesn't matter. You can't drive it forever, just the way it is. You have to do something. You have to pull into a, a station. You have to take a hose off and put it in the car and fill that tank. Now, for me, there's no sense of contentment that really approaches the seeing that needle beyond the full mark, because you can do anything. I can go visit relatives, I can go visit friends, I can do errands, but the car is full. And spending $80 to fill your car, what can you say? It doesn't get me that down, all right? But that is what we do with our car. It has to be full. Well, that's what God is saying. Pull, you, pull yourself up to his station. He has the joy. He is eternal. Plug yourself into him. Fill your tank. Feel his joy. It'll change your life. Doesn't matter what things are happening uh, that are negative or positive. Doesn't matter if you're sick, if you're poor. His joy will fill you. That's why the apostle can say that. Rejoice in the Lord always. He doesn't say, unless this is happening. Unless this is happening. Now, what Zephaniah's purpose and intent is, is to encourage us that there will be every reason for joy going forward. There will be a time when the judgments will end. 
And the neat part about this prophecy is that God, as I said, lists out for us several things that he is going to do that is going to cause us to have joy. If you keep on reading, uh, starting verse 15, there's four things that we want to focus on. First of all, the Lord will take away your judgments, right? Uh, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He's cleared your way. God sometime will not have to make an inquiry into your life as to your sin. Just think if my daughter could wake up in Houston any morning and not worry that her three-year-old boys were going to tear the house apart. We're going to hit each other. We're going to steal toys from one another. They would be perfect. Wow. God is saying, the day's coming when I will no longer have to execute judgments against you. You will respond to me the way that I created you to do. Secondly, he's cleared away your enemies. For Israel, this refers to those hostile tribes. The second part of Zephaniah's book is directed against those tribes that surround Israel, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Assyrians, and so forth, the Edomites. And God is having to judge them. Even though they've played a role in God's economy to judge Israel, they're still going to have to pay the price themselves for not worshiping the one true king. But God says someday you won't have any enemies around. They'll be cleared out. Now, that's great for Israel, but who are our enemies? Whether well, the same enemies that were around in that first century when Jesus came as a baby. It's an enemy of spiritual darkness. Uh, we have uh, things happen that separate us from God. Now, like I said, at the close of the Old Testament, God went dark. He went silent. He didn't speak to his people for 400 years. Living this side of the cross, that's hard to understand. What in the world was God thinking? Why would he do that? But he wanted to get their attention. Now, 100 years would have got my attention. 200 years, for sure. But 400 years? No prophets, no writings, no scriptures. They're new. It just closed. It was like God said, I've said enough. Sometimes we do that, right? With our kids. We go, put them in their room. We shut the door, and it's just like, I sometimes think of a biblical depiction of judgment as voices are screaming in the darkness as that door closes. Ah! And how long they stay in there by themselves is totally up to their mom. When she's good and ready, she'll go and release them and say, the time is up. God does the same thing. God closes that Old Testament, and no matter what protests the people of God may have said, please don't do that, God. Please. No. There was silence. And people were waiting for God to speak again. The third thing that we see God doing is he promises that he will be in our midst. I love this, this verse. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. Now, the word here translated, midst, kerub in the Hebrew, can uh, probably more accurately just say that God is near. God is near. He's drawing closer. The time is coming, Zephaniah says, when God himself will be among us. That closed door will be open. It will be paroled, in a sense. 
And the covenant people of Israel will once again reestablish their relationship with their heavenly father, their creator. For us who live on this side of the cross, we know that to be true. We know that Jesus came, that God himself drew near in that manger, in that stable, and that the world has never been the same since. He is near. That's the theme of Zephaniah. His whole prophecy, the word near, is used over and over and over. It is the hope that the people of the Old Testament have. It is the realization, the truth, that the people of the New Testament lived. And it is the benefit that we, in this day and age, have available to us. We live with God. And the cool part is, is that when that baby was born, he lived his life, he went to the cross, he shed his blood so that we might have new life with God. And the time came when Jesus resurrected, ascended to the Father, the Holy Spirit came down on Pentecost, filled us, and to this day, we have the presence of God in our lives. Do you know that we can witness to a world the truth of this verse? The Lord is in your midst, because when you and I walk into the community, when we are with our family and friends, God is near. God is actually there. Another way of translating this is just saying, God is here. There's no waiting necessary. He is available. The King of Israel, the Lord. I love the way that Zephaniah is writing that. The King of Israel, the creator of the world, the Lord is in your midst. Then fourthly, you shall never again fear evil. It's better translated, you shall never again see evil. Think about living a life where there's no crime, no sickness, no evil intent by others to cause you harm, where nature doesn't work against us, but instead is subject to our needs. Because of sin, we have a hole that's created in us. All, every one of us, we're born with a need, and we don't know how to fill it, but we try. We try with material goods, we try with relationships, we try in every way to find out what is the purpose for why we have been created. But according to this, those days will be gone. We'll understand why it is that we belong, to whom we belong, and why we have a purpose in life, what we were created for. In verses 18 through 20, we see the same thing. This time, though, every one of the promises is offset with the personal pronoun of I. God is saying, I make these promises to you. This will happen in the future. And he says, I will gather you, uh, for those of you who mourn for the festival, so that you no longer suffer reproach. And that's a really a difficult translation on that verse. I'm not sure I like it the way that it is in the ESV, but it's basically saying, you as a nation of Israel, you have not obeyed me. You have not been to the feast. You have not done the things that I've commanded you to observe. And for those reasons, you have been punished. But he says, I'm going to remove those from you. That will no longer be your legacy. Then he goes on in verse 19. I will deal with all of those that oppress you. I will save the lame. Those who are outcast, he's going to gather them together. No matter where you find yourself today, physically ill, emotionally damaged, poor, it doesn't matter. You can list anything negative there. And God says, I will gather you. There will be justice. He is the just one. I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. 
verse 20, and this is some of the most powerful promises in there. At that time, I will bring you in. At the time when I gather you together, I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth. When I restore your fortunes before your eyes, how can you not have joy? How can you not have joy when you know that that's part of your inheritance? When you know that you are going to be there? To some extent, these things have already been accomplished. When Jesus came the first time, we celebrate Christmas because when the first advent occurred, it was amazing. When the fullness of time was right, according to the New Testament, God sent forth his son. But there's a second advent coming. And those parts of this prophecy that have not yet been fulfilled will come fully into play. It is who we are. So when we think about being joyful, it's not about being happy. We don't have to worry about whether today's gone well or not so well. We just plug into the Lord. We go to him in prayer. We read his word. And we say, God, we need your joy. I need your joy. Please, I choose to be joyful. I choose to be part of your kingdom. The New Testament writers picked up on this. The way that this happens is by drawing near to him. He draws near to us in the advent. We draw near to him. Paul writes in Romans chapter 10, verses 6 and 9. Uh, what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. Tremendous. John 12, uh, just looking at the Passion Week of Christ. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the one who's drawing near in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. You have to understand, these people at the time of Jesus, they had, they had not seen this yet. They'd just been waiting, anticipating. Can't, can't wait. I may die just like my fathers and my grandfathers and my great-grandfathers without ever seeing this day, but those people who lived in that generation saw the fulfillment of Zephaniah's prophecy when the king of Israel was brought into the city of Jerusalem riding that colt with those palm leaves spread on the ground before him. Matthew 1, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Hebrews 1, Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these days... He has spoken to us by the Son. You get to hear what no one else has heard. What a promise. The New Testament people in the early church <coughs> were well aware of how privileged they were to be alive at that time. Now, was their life great? Were their circumstances towards happiness better than ours? Well, they were being arrested. They were being flogged, beaten. They were sometimes being put to death. They were losing their jobs because of their faith. No, it had nothing to do with that. It was the acknowledgement that God still had his program in place, that though they had thought that he had forgotten them, that perhaps this wasn't going to happen, it now had happened, and they were so excited. John the Apostle writes, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, <coughs> and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father. Uh, Ephesians, Paul writes, I remember you that at the time you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope 
and without God in the world. Does that sound like our community? Does that sound like our culture? But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, what? Have been brought near by the blood of Christ. It is the thing they held on to the strongest. They were so excited. It's an amazing thing to draw near to God. So we should have joy. When we celebrate Christmas, it doesn't matter if your light's all light, if your tree is great, if you get the most tremendous gifts, or you can afford to give great gifts. The only thing that matters is that you're focused on the fact that Zephaniah's prophecy has come true, that God sent forth his son as a babe in that manger. Now, most people of his day, of Jesus's day, of Joseph and Mary's day, were awoke on that morning of the birth, or even the day after the birth. Yes, it, if it happened in the middle of the night, as often portrayed. Nothing was different. They still had to get up, put on their clothes, make breakfast, go to work. They still were living in enslavement to Rome. Nothing new. Keep on moving, people. Nothing here to see. But that doesn't mean nothing had happened. God had come. God had drawn near. And these promises from the Lord had begun. If they had known it, if they could have seen it, they would have been rejoicing. Oh, the shepherds heard about it. They were told, run into town. Something amazing has happened. And so they ran. They left their sheep out in the pastures. And they abandoned their duties. But they knew that something life-changing was happening. The skies broke open. And there were the angels singing, glory to the Lord. One more story from the passages. Luke chapter 2, verse 25. I love this. Eight days after the birth of Jesus, Joseph and Mary wrap him in swaddling clothes, bring him into the temple. And it says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. In other words, they've been living in darkness, in quietness, in silence. They've been judged by God, and it seemed like this judgment would go forever. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. In other words, the Messiah. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do to him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, and I love this little magnificat of his own, where he is his praising the Lord, understanding that the prophecy of Zephaniah was indeed coming true before he died to this world. He says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. You see, there, there had been so many people contemporaneous with Simeon but preceding Simeon, who had been so hopeful that that day was going to come. Oh, God, please, may this be the day that your Messiah appears. They didn't know what to look for. They didn't know how that was going to happen. They hadn't been given a blueprint or a plan. They just knew that it was a promise of God. 
And Simeon, by the power of the Holy Spirit, had the ability to discern that that little child that had been brought forth to be circumcised was indeed God. And nothing, nothing would be the same ever again. And Simeon says, now my eyes can close, now I can die, for I have seen your salvation. It's hard for us in our world today to put ourselves into their sandals, right? To have such an appreciation and understanding of the impact of this child arriving. Almost everyone missed it. But we've had the privilege of seeing that whole thing played out. The people that got to live with Christ, that actually got to hear his sermons, got to see him heal people, cast out demons. Oh, were they blessed. If you watch that Chosen TV series, you you get a feel for what that must have been like to be alive at that time. It gets me excited. But Jesus says this, you who believe, even though you have not seen nor heard, you're the blessed one. You're the ones who have the mission. Since the time of Christ, his disciples, those that they discipled, those that they discipled, those that they discipled, have looked back to those birth narratives in Matthew and Luke, the first advent, Christmas, and they have celebrated it. They have glorified in the Lord. They have plugged in to joy. Their tanks are empty, They swing around and they think, this is the way it could be. This is the way that my ancestors lived in darkness and in judgment and discipline of God. But now I have the joy of the Lord. Sing, O daughter of Israel. Shout, rejoice, exult. Nothing was better for them than it is for us. They had an oppressive government. They had crazy religious leaders who should have known better but didn't seem to. They lived in poverty. They were sick. Their lives were short. And yet, they had joy. So should we. We're waiting for that second advent. We're waiting for the time when all of Zephaniah's prophecy comes true. And we can't fall into that rut of thinking, oh, God has forgotten. He's been quiet way too long. He's not there anymore. The truth is, it's going to happen. Just like it did in the first advent. God is going to send his son back, and this time he's going to come in a far different way. Is he going to find his church waiting? Matthew 24, verse 36, talks to us and tells us, yeah, there are going to be some that are not ready. But we don't want that to be us. We want to be ready for his coming. And in the meantime, that joy, it should animate us. It should excite us. It should help us be fulfilling of God's directives to us. We should be telling the world that he has come, that he has drawn near, and he lives in us. That's the true story of Christmas. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you for just the promise made in the book of Zephaniah. Father, it is so awesome that we have the privilege of being joyful. 
true joy, not happiness, not merely happiness. But Father, may we fill up at your word every morning. May we spend time in prayer and give you our sorrows, our struggles, those things that we're concerned about. Father, to ask forgiveness for when you have to discipline us because we take our finger and we just put it on the edge hoping that you won't notice. But God, you do. May we come to that day when sin has been taken away, when God no longer has to make inquiries as to our iniquities, when our enemies are defeated, when you are in our midst in a way that you are not right now. Oh God, we look forward to that time. May this Christmas, may we communicate to our family and friends our hope of this happening. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.